It's an honor for me to be here this evening. I am suffering under three penalties. First is, Dr. Renahan preached half my sermon. <laughs> Second is, after Dr. Malone's irenic thoughts in the last hour, all I have left is shrapnel. <laughs> My second problem is you're all full of tacos. My third problem is these lectures are basically presented by the theology committee. And I am the oldest. I checked with Fred about this. I'm five months older than he is. And I am the least qualified Fred didn't tell me that, member of the Theology Committee. So I am honored to speak to you on a subject which, as a matter of fact, is near and dear to my own heart. One of the books with which I may assume most of all of us are familiar is Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress begins with a man named Graceless which was his name in the City of Destruction, you learned later. He is met by a man named Evangelist. An evangelist instructs him to go to a wicked gate directly. And as he finds his way finally to the gate and through the gate, he is immediately brought to a house called the Interpreter's House, which is the church. And he has shown various rooms in the interpreter's house, the first of which he has introduced to the preacher and to preaching. In fact, interpreter says to him, I have showed ye this picture first, because the man whose picture this is, is the only man, the Lord of the place whither thou art going, hath authorized to be thy guide. Preaching. And the preacher. We are dealing with, and it has already been introduced and defined for us, the means of grace this week. The means of grace, Burkhoff says, are the objective channels which Christ has instituted in the church and to which he ordinarily binds himself in the communication of his grace. They are itemized, as we've learned in the London Confession, chapter 14 and paragraph 1, some extended items in chapter 22 and verse 5. Or as John Owen puts it, the enjoined duty, the means of grace, are the enjoined duties of reading and expounding the scripture, of singing psalms unto the praise of God, of the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and of diligent preaching the word. All of them with prayer. We have also learned already, and introductions are for throat clearing, so we're just clearing the ground. These must be instituted by God. As Warfield says, it is the essence of fanaticism to neglect the means which God has ordained for the production of effects. They must also be blessed of God. And this is a very near subject, is it not, to the regulative principle of worship. 
Perhaps you've heard these words before from Spurgeon who said, Whatever form of religion God has ordained, it is ours to practice without the slightest variation. And to alter any one of the ordinances of God is an act of dire profanation. However reasonable that alteration may seem to be, it is treason against high heaven and is not to be permitted in the church of Christ. While the form of religion is not power, yet unless the form be carefully observed, it is not easy to maintain the power. It is like an eggshell enclosing the egg. There is no life in the shell, but you may take care you do not break it, or else you will destroy the life therein. And so this is an important subject. It is good that it's taken as our theme this week, I believe. I want to begin with two broad stipulations. I'm using the word stipulation in the way that it's ordinarily used in a forensic or legal context. Stipulations are what a prosecuting and a defense attorney agree upon before the trial or during the trial, so they don't argue common ground. They say, we stipulate these things to be facts, and they don't need to be argued. There are certain stipulations that we can begin with. I mention only two. First of all, that broadly, as has already been pointed out today, God may use a variety of means. And all of them are at his disposal. And the Bible is full of interesting examples of this. A friend of mine told me, he said, even a tree can be a means of grace. Anything which brings us close to Christ can be a means of grace. The tree did not save Zacchaeus, but it brought him nearer to Christ. Here, God used a tree. However, second stipulation is narrowly, Reformed thought has settled upon the rubric word and sacrament. Or, as Jim tells us, dominical institutions instituted by God and blessed by God. I would draw your attention to a passage which you need not turn there because I know that you are uh, very familiar with it. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1 and verses 21 through 23. Let me read them for you. For the world through its wisdom knew not God. It was God's good pleasure through the foolishness of the preaching to save them that believe. Seeing that Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block and under the Gentiles foolishness. I draw just a simple outline from this. First of all, notice that preaching pleases God. That's actually the end of the argument, isn't it? Preaching pleases God. Now, I know well enough that the Greek expression here means the objective content of preaching. However, do not forget that it's the objective context of preaching preached. We can emphasize the first part, rightly so. It pleased God through the foolishness of the thing preached to save them that believe. Do not forget that it's the foolishness of the thing preached that God was pleased by to save them that believe. 
Simple outline. Number one, preaching pleases God. Outline part number two, preaching does not please men. The Jews seek after signs. The Greeks seek after wisdom. The Jews want activity and the Greeks want academy. Preaching pleases God. Preaching does not please men. What to do? Preaching pleases God. Preaching does not please men. What should we do? I do not underline in my Bible, because usually a year later I go back and I think, what was I thinking? (laughs) So I don't underline, but over the years, once in a while, I slip. And I underline the first three words in verse 23. Let me show you again what's going on here. Um, he says that God, in his good pleasure, was pleased through the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe, saying that the Jews ask for signs, the Greeks ask for wisdom. And then the first three words in verse 23, but we preach. Preaching pleases God. Preaching does not please men. So we preach. There's the answer to it. Truth is always more important than people. If that sounds strange to you, turn it around the other way. It can't be that. Now, preaching has been demoted and preaching has been deported from its rightful position as the ordinary means of grace. The reasons for this are manifold and we haven't time to count them all. When my son, who's now 38 years old, was, I think, four years old, we went to a meeting at a church somewhere. I don't remember the reason we were there, but he and I went and we sat down. We were there somewhat early and we just walked in the front uh, middle aisle and sat down on the row. And uh, he was sitting there quietly waiting for whatever it was to start. And finally, I leaned over to him and I said, Justin, what's wrong with this church? We'd never been there before. And he leaned back over to me and whispered in my ear without any thought at all. He already knew what the answer was. He says, Dad, the pulpit is not in the center. Ligon Duncan once said, faithfulness to the ordinary means of grace is not rocket science. Dad, the pulpit is not in the center. Something has displaced it. It's been put to the side. So preaching has been demoted. It's been deported from its rightful position. We are suffering nowadays with what I would call death from a thousand paper cuts. One little thing after the other. And soon we find ourselves in deep trouble. And preaching has been displaced. Lloyd-Jones, in his lovely book, Preaching and Preachers, says in the first chapter, As preaching has declined, these other things have been emphasized. And he mentions, with his favorite word, abomination, a whole list of things that have encroached upon preaching. He mentions singing, testimonies, counseling, the printing and recording of sermons, and personal work. He concludes by saying, all of this is at best secondary, very often not even secondary, often not worthy of a place at all. 
The primary task of the church and of the Christian minister is the preaching of the word of God. My first pastor when I was in high school gave me some good advice. And I remembered these things that he said. And one of them was, he said, people will forgive you for all of your weaknesses if you are strong in the pulpit. And it's true. They'll forgive you for a lot. I've proved that to be true. (laughs) People have forgiven me for many things. Whether I'm strong in the pulpit or not, at least they know that's what I try to do. And Spurgeon once said, preach, preach, preach. It is a wise thing to let many other things alone. And to sacrifice the study for the parlor is criminal. Zacharias Ursinus, we're told, had a sign at the entrance to his study which read, Friend, entering here, be short or go, or else assist me in my work. Preaching was clearly central to him. However, if we were to make a long list of the reasons for the declension of preaching, I think that the foremost reason or cause of the decline of preaching is bad preaching. Whenever something is not good, you usually replace it with something else. Calvin said, at the very present day, there are many who are well nigh sickened by the very name of preaching. Because there are so many stupid, ignorant men who blurt out their worthless brainwaves from the pulpit. I'm a little nervous about that quote because I don't know if Calvin would have said brainwaves. But whoever translated it supplied that word. Now, my point that I want to make this evening is made by this. I want to change my title. Uh, We have four lectures to open up the four items in chapter 14 and paragraph 1. The first of which is preaching, and then there's baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. Um, I want to change my title. I don't want it to be preaching a means of grace. I'm going to ask, please, that it be preaching the ordinary means of grace. Dr. Renahan once said, I've picked this out of his statement, he says, the ordinary means of grace are, well, ordinary. They are ordinary because they are not exciting. They are ordinary because they are normal, even routine. They don't sell well because the means of grace are so ordinary. But the ordinary means of grace produce ordinary Christians. I want my title to be not a means of grace, but the ordinary means of grace. The catechisms agree with this. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 89, the answer says, The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means. Remember when Christian went to Mr. Worldly Wise Man's house? And Mr. Worldly Wise Man begins to talk to him about how he came to be there and what he wanted. And he notices that he has this burden upon his back. And he says, how camest thou by thy burden at first? And uh, Christian said, by reading this book in my hand. And did you ever know what Mr. Worldly Wise Man noticed what he said? He says, I thought so. I thought so. Reading that book. 
And so it says the reading, but especially the preaching of the word is an effectual means. The Baptist Catechism, in the same way, says the outward and ordinary means are his ordinances, especially the preaching of the word. And so I take that impetus and say I want this to say to be the ordinary means of grace. This is the first, as I said, of four lectures, each of which has the title A Means of Grace. But I want to assert that these are not equal. All other means of grace must get in line behind this one. Um, Some time ago, when I was uh, taking Dr. Renahan's symbolics class for the first time, um, I brought a list. I, I, I do things like this. I counted up all the commas, colons, semicolons, and periods in the confession. And I counted them, and I listed them by chapter and paragraph. Because in the 17th century, they didn't make short little choppy sentences like are popular nowadays. They divided their thoughts logically using punctuation, commas, semicolons, colons, and periods. And everyone kind of chuckled at the idea that I would do such a thing. But then today, you know, he made a real case out of the fact there's a semicolon after preaching. And it separates baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer from preaching. And the word ordinarily then applies primarily to the word preaching. I like that. It's a vindication of my work. (laughs) Preaching is primus inter paras, first among equals. So the title, The Ordinary Means of Grace. Herman Hoekstra once said, Of these, the preaching of the word is most important. Without the sacraments, the Christian, if need be, can live. But he can never live without preaching. Upon the preaching of the word, therefore, the sacraments are dependent. Without it, they are meaningless and have no content. Donald McLeod has said, though the supper is not to be marginalized, it certainly is not as what lies at the heart of the Christian life. It has its own importance, but the preaching of the word is always more important than any sacrament. Other means assist our faith, but preaching assembles it. Lloyd-Jones again says, The decadent periods in history of the church have always been those periods when preaching has declined. What is it that always heralds the dawn of reformation or of a revival? It is renewed preaching. The chiefest thing of all, preaching. I cannot emphasize this too much. Preaching controls everything and determines the character of everything else. J.C. Ryle. The importance of preaching as a means of grace the high value which the Bible everywhere sets on preaching, the pulpit is the place where the chief victories of the gospel have always been won, and no church has ever done much for its advancement in which the pulpit has been neglected. The Puritans were wont to say, I've caught several of them saying this, I don't know who was copying whom, they said, God uses sometimes contrary means, Sometimes unlikely means, always weak means, ordinarily preaching. The ordinary means of grace. 
Now, my task this evening is different from those who will follow me. He who speaks to you tomorrow morning on baptism will not baptize you. Aren't you glad? I asked him. He says, no, I'm not going to do that. But mine is preaching. I must preach to you. I have to use my point in order to make my point. You see the difficulty. Because if I fail in the former, I've also failed in the latter. So all of these things are upon me. How are we going to do this then? Well, in the time remaining, I want to make four assertions. And these four assertions begin with this. Preaching is the ordinary means of grace. Number one, because no other means enjoys the authority of preaching. And I would like you then to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 10. This has already been alluded to today. Romans chapter 10, and I would like to read verses 14 through 17. Once again, this is a very familiar passage. Romans 10 and verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? Even as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that bring glad tidings of good things. But they did not all hearken to the glad tidings. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So belief cometh of hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. No other means enjoys the authority of preaching. John Murray, in his commentary on Romans, in this passage, says, The saving relation to Christ involved in calling upon his name is not something that can occur in a, va in a vacuum. It occurs only in a context created by proclamation of the gospel on the part of those commissioned to proclaim it. There is no need, he says in a footnote, to insert the preposition in before him. How shall they believe not in him, but how shall they believe him unless they hear the preaching? He goes on to say, a striking feature of this clause is that Christ is represented as being heard in the gospel when proclaimed by sent messengers. The implication is that Christ speaks in the gospel proclamation. In verse 17, Murray goes on to say, Paul uh, says this in order to eliminate all doubt of what is encountered here. Again, verse 17, so belief cometh of hearing, hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. There is something of an intramural debate among Greek students as to whether Greek has five cases or eight cases. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I grew up with eight cases. And so some things to me are not genitives, they're ablatives. All right? And that's what we have, I believe, here. Unless they hear from Christ himself. Herman Hoeksema again says, Though preach, through preaching you do not hear about Christ, but you hear him. A Christian may witness for Christ in the world, 
He may give an answer. He may confess his faith. But this does not make him a preacher. And this does not make his word a means of grace in the accepted sense. A preacher is not a person who merely speaks concerning Christ, but one through whom it pleases Christ to speak. Again, I say, no other means enjoys the authority of preaching. The second Helvetic confession from which we get the crest of IRBS, the preaching of the word of God, is the word of God. Or as Dr. Renahan says, the means of grace uh, God has ordained is to bring the pactum salutis and the historia salutis to the ordo salutis. Now, if you don't know what all that Latin means, ask Jim, but be certain you have 45 minutes. James Stalker once said, and I quote these people because they say it so well, and I'm not smart enough to say it as well as they, so I read it to you. It is put to us whether our people should not be taught to come to church for the purpose of speaking to God rather than in order to be spoken to by a man. This has a pious sound. But there is a fallacy in it. Preaching is not merely the speaking of a man. If it is, then it's certainly not worth coming to church for. Preaching, if it is of the right kind, is the voice of God. No other means enjoys the authority of preaching. The Heidelberg Catechism on Lord's Day 31 identifies preaching with the keys. You know the keys of the kingdom? Whereby, it says, the kingdom of heaven is opened to believers and closed against unbelievers. Bobbing says, if a minister is not able to bring a message from God, his preaching loses all authority. Who gives him the right to put himself on a pulpit above them? Who would dare do this unless he has a word from God to proclaim? Charles Denson has said that the church has failed to account for the absence of a direct command in Scripture or its confessions prescribing personal evangelism. Without warrant, it is proceeded to issue the order where the creeds are silent. Such silence, however, is due neither to error nor ignorance, but because our fathers felt bound to say no more than Scripture and to place the people under no greater obligation than did the Scriptures. There is this notion about evangelism that grace somehow turns extroverts or introverts into extroverts. My experience has been just the opposite. Grace turns extroverts into introverts. It puts my hand over my mouth. What dare I say? Nothing has the authority that preaching does. Matthew Brennan, my dear brother, who I wish were here tonight, bless his heart, he called me one day about three weeks ago, and he said something so profound I wrote it down. He says, for years in Ireland, we have paid attention to evangelism and not to the church. Now in Ireland, we have plenty of church. We have no church, but plenty of evangelists. The reason for all of this is we have forsaken preaching and nothing has the authority of preaching. Now, my second point is this. I demand that this be the ordinary means of grace because no other means enjoys the atmosphere of preaching. Preaching is an event. 
it's an event existential. The existentialist philosophers like to use the term hick et nunc, here and now. It's something that happens in the context of God's assembled people. It's an event existential. It's what Brodus called electric sympathies. I don't know exactly what that is, but I know when I don't have it. Lloyd-Jones said, this is the great mystery of the church. There is something in the very atmosphere of people meeting together to worship God and to listen to preaching. When you enter a church, a company of God's people, there is a factor which immediately comes into operation, which is reinforced by preaching. It is an atmosphere produced by what the Westminster says is sound preaching and conscionable hearing. The London Confession just says by hearing and preaching. The Westminster adds the words sound and conscionable. I think they ought to have left that alone. Spurgeon once said that true preaching and obediential hearing of revealed truth are an acceptable form of worship and the most spiritual in which the human mind can be engaged. Whitfield, Lloyd-Jones tells the story, was once asked for a copy of the sermon he had just preached in order that it might be published. And this was his reply. He said, I have no objection if you will print the lightning, the thunder, and the rainbow with it. Lloyd-Jones comments, you cannot put preaching into cold print. It is impossible. You cannot put preaching on paper. It is an atmosphere created and blessed by God. It is an event existential. I need to tell you a story. In 1983, I went to England. And as I was touring around London on my own, I went to Spurgeon's College. And there, it's a long story, I won't tell you all of it, but I came into possession because of the kindness of a janitor. Some of Spurgeon's own personal notes. Not one of those edited manuscripts that they're selling nowadays. No, his half page of notes written in purple ink that he took into the pulpit. It's my prized, most prized possession in the world. And uh, if you ever come to see me, I'll take it out and let you see it. When I got back to America, I decided, I think I'll take that sermon and Spurgeon's own notes and preach it next Sunday. So I was there with Spurgeon's own handwritten notes in the pulpit, and I was going to preach his sermon. And it was one of those many times that I failed most miserably. You cannot put preaching on paper. There is an atmosphere in the assembled people of God that enables it to be the ordinary means of grace. Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, said, There are many that reject the ordinance of God. Is not, they say, reading of good books at home as good as going to church? Do not such confess that the river, rivers of Damascus are as good as Jordan? No, no, we must come to heaven by the foolishness of preaching. Preaching is the ordinary means of grace, first of all, because no other means enjoys the authority of preaching. Number two, no other means enjoys the atmosphere of preaching. 
Number three, no other means enjoys the accuracy of preaching. Preaching, if it is of the right kind, is well prepared. There is thoroughgoing explication of the text. There is balanced inference. There is forthright application. And all of that takes time and is hard work. But it adds up to the accuracy that belongs to the word as it is preached. T. David Gordon has said that the typical unbeliever today is not exposed to the Christian message through a competent presentation of the faith, but through a well-meaning but less competent, untrained, inarticulate, and often bumbling one. The impression is often left that the Christian religion itself is confused, inarticulate, and subjective. There is too much at stake to turn evangelism over to those who are unwilling or unable. When people who are either uncalled or not gifted to evangelize attempt to do that for which they are not equipped, they inevitably do it badly. Their good motives cannot overcome their inability. Efforts are not enough in any area of life. Efforts to be effective must be competent. Evangelism must be done, but it must also be done well. And nothing does that other than the prepared preaching and the prepared preacher in the atmosphere of the gathered people of God. Why do you think evangelists sent graceless to the church and to preaching? The fourth and last thing that I would submit is that no other means enjoys the agenda of preaching. It is argued And I think the argument has merit that the sole recipient of the Great Commission in Matthew 28 must be the church, not the individual. The argument is because of the command to baptize. So it's not submitted to the individual because the individual cannot baptize. Baptism is a church ordinance. And therefore, it is handed down from the apostles to the church. And I think that's a valid argument. But it's not the strongest argument to make that case. There's another argument that usually is missed. And that is, we are told in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, that part of it is to teach all things that I have commanded you. Only preaching ever can get around to teaching all things commanded. The agenda of preaching. Um, I think it says in the uh, blurb in the program about the speakers that I have, and it's true, been at Providence Reformed Baptist Church for 35 years. And in 35 years, in one place, I am still only dreaming of teaching all things. There's nothing else in the world, there is no other means of grace that enjoys the agenda of preaching. Only preaching, studied preaching, hour after hour, week after week, month after month, year after year, for a whole lifetime, ever has the possible potential of teaching all things. So I submit to you in these four ways that preaching is the ordinary means of grace. Only it enjoys the authority, the atmosphere, the accuracy, and the agenda of the ordinary means of grace. I have enjoyed over the years thinking about uh, Ezekiel. Ezekiel in chapter 37. 
You all know the passage. There's songs been sung about it, about the dry bones, the ankle bone connected to the knee bone or the leg bone and the knee bone, the thigh bone. Hear the word of the Lord. Ezekiel is taken there and he is set uh, by a valley. And the valley is full of bones. And he is asked by God, first of all, to survey the bones. And he comes to three conclusions. Number one, there are very many. Number two, they are very dry. And number three, they are very dead. Ezekiel learned something very important at that point. Then he's asked the question, can these bones live? And he gives a good answer. Lord, you know. And then God steps to his side and says something that probably startled Ezekiel. He said, Ezekiel, preach to the bones and say, hear the word of Jehovah. And he did. And there was a noise. Spurgeon says that the noise was the outcry and complaint of the bones being brought back together. They didn't like being caused to move. So there is this movement. I wonder if Ezekiel thought anything was going to happen. This is just a test. But something began to happen. And so if you keep reading, you'll find that God again steps to his side because perhaps he was dumbfounded and it stopped. God calls upon him and he says, Now, Ezekiel, that something has begun to happen, prophesy, preach to the bones, and tell them, hear the word of Jehovah. And sinew and flesh came upon the bones, and they stood up, we're told, an exceeding great army. Then God comes to Ezekiel the third time, and he says, Guess what? Ezekiel, preach to the bones. Hear the word of Jehovah. There's something instructive about that. We tend to think that certain means apply at certain times. There is never a time that preaching does not apply. Before anything had happened, he was told to preach. When something began to happen, he's told again to preach. And after they stood up an exceeding great army, God again tells him, now is the time to preach. Not something else, not something more, the same thing. Before, during, and after. One means of grace, preaching. J.C. Ryle said, my own private opinion is this. We have lost too much sight of apostolic simplicity in our work. We want more men of one thing. Men who make everything secondary to preaching. Again, Lloyd-Jones said, the chiefest thing of all, preaching. I cannot emphasize this too much. Preaching controls everything and determines the character of everything else. Or as the Puritans say, God uses sometimes contrary means, sometimes unlikely means, always weak means, but ordinarily preaching. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we have gathered together this week and our purpose in doing so 
is to study the means of grace. We pray that might we not only benefit from our study of the means of grace, but we might benefit also from those means of grace upon us. We thank you for what we have heard today. Thank you for the means of preaching and that we have heard it. And we pray that throughout this week you would be pleased to bless your word for your glory and for our good we ask it. For we ask it in Christ's name.